Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Over the last year, you've heard Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever use the very specific word grasslands more and more and more in our everyday vernacular. Yeah, well, it, it's existed since 1982, that word in our vernacular. We very deliberately integrated it on an everyday basis across everything we do. Before our eyes, during this generation, America's grasslands are disappearing off the landscape. We've talked about it in the launch of our Call of the Uplands campaign. In fact, in that launch campaign episode, we mentioned this startling statistic. 53 million acres of grasslands have disappeared across the Great Plains since 2009. 53 million acres in the last 12 years. That's an area the size of Kansas. When I was a little kid, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons and, and uh, the ecosystem that was disappearing off the planet was the rainforests. Right now, our generation, the ecosystem that's disappearing off the planet is in our backyards. It's the Great Plains. It's the grasslands. Today, we have a new episode dedicated to the grasslands. Today, with our partners at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we bring good news of a new tool to help return some of those acres back to the grasslands, particularly in the Great Plains. Our episode today will focus on the new Great Plains Grassland initiative coming out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And fittingly, I talked about those 53 million acres that have disappeared in the last 12 years being the an area the size of Kansas. Will this new Great Plains Grassland Initiative, guess where it's starting? Kansas. Absolutely, folks. It all comes full circle. And joining us for this episode of On the Wing Podcast, making his return to the podcast, Chris McClelland, our Midwest Director of Conservation Delivery. Uh, Tim Griffiths also returns, the NRCS Western Regional Coordinator of Working Lands for Wildlife. And uh, he was on the one of my favorite episodes, the sage grouse episode about two summers ago. You should definitely tune back in for that one. And Dean Studmuffin Crable from the Natural Resources State uh, Resources Conservationist for the state of Kansas. Um, as inside joke right off the bat, uh, Dean, since I introduced you as Studmuffin, uh, we're going to have to let you go first and introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, and, and for listeners, uh, I asked I asked Dean how to pronounce his last name because I haven't ever met him before. 
And as he uh, turns his microphone off of mute to introduce himself, um, I asked him how he pronounces his last name, and he says, well, pronounce it Stoudmuffin. So so you got a great personality for uh, the podcast listenership, Dean. Welcome to On The Wing Podcast. Hey, good afternoon. I appreciate that. And uh, what an opening. I knew that was probably going to end up and bite me. But, uh, <laughs> well, no, I, I do appreciate uh, the invitation to chat a little bit today. So Dean Crable, uh, I am the state resource conservationist for USDA and RCS here in Kansas. Been uh, been with uh, been, been been with the agency for about 24 years, doing good conservation all across the state of Kansas. So, uh, a lot of good partnership building. Um, my job is 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 I, I sit at the helm of of a lot of great staff, a lot of good opportunities to work with our our private lands conservationists, uh, being the ranchers and the producers across the state of Kansas and the region for that matter too. But uh, thanks for the invitation. <laughs> well, thanks for. Um uh lightening the mood right out of the get-go the podcast is obviously supposed to be uh, uh educational but i i could tell you're gonna bring some entertainment value too um tim tim griffiths uh rejoining the podcast welcome back tim hey how you doing bud good to see you again <laughs> i'm doing great um tell us a little bit about your background yeah well first and foremost i'm a diehard elk hunter you know, I love chasing elk every fall with a bow. I follow that by chasing roosters with the dogs here in Montana, where I call home. Um, you know, spend a lot of time with the family, outdoor pursuits, have my whole life. Um, but but job-wise, right, career, you got to make a living. And I happen to yeah. have a wonderful job. I worked for Natural Resource Conservation Service for a couple decades now. And uh, for about the last 10 have really been focused on this, this concept of working lands for wildlife and really targeting some of these landscapes to, you know, make them as profitable and productive as possible for people, you know, wildlife and the community. So, uh, yeah, just, just pleasure to be on. Thanks for the invite. I I'm surprised you didn't learn your lesson from the first time that we, we had this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you up on the offer. <laughs> Well, I, I do. I mean it sincerely. One of my favorite episodes, I think, I don't know, I've got to be into 110 or 115 episodes. And one of my favorite was the episode we did when we, you came to our all team meeting in Iowa and we talked, I think it was also the longest episode. We talked for about two hours, mm -hmm. everything a person needs to know about the biology, the habitat, and how to hunt sage grouse. It was riveting. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, you know, just a couple weeks ago, well, I suppose a couple months ago now, that, um, you know, there was a big news report that sage grouse have, have it once again uh, dropped. Well, we're 80% drop in sage grouse populations from, from where they once were um, in the 60s. Um, did that come is anything of a surprise to you or has it it's been something where obviously you've been intimately involved for about a decade now with sage grouse yeah. maybe longer but i know for sure a decade what what what's your take on the the report that came out recently yeah no it's it's uh you know sage grouse are something that definitely we do know a lot about it's been studied tremendously we have a lot of counts we have a lot of understanding on 
you know, the factors that are driving those populations. And, and when you sum it up, it, it's pretty simple, right? These are birds that need large, intact, unbroken landscapes. And so anytime you have things like, you know, uh, conversion of rangelands to cropland or encroaching conifers that, you know, convert a grassland to a forest or energy development or any of those, those big fragmenting features, you end up having these population declines. And so we know a lot of the areas of the West, right? Those have been chopped up and fragmented. And so over those multiple decades, it's not surprising that our canary in the coal mine, like a sage grouse, has seen those sharp population reductions. But, but, but the glass half full part of it, right, is mm -hmm. the coalition of ranchers, of partners like Pheasants Forever and states um, and, and uh, BLM and, and, and the like have really um, worked to stem that stem the tide, you know, and, 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 and not only stop the bleeding, but start to put more birds back in the air. And so we have some really encouraging results now to report where like in Oregon, where we've restored several hundred thousand acres of rangelands that were formerly lost with the expansion of the trees. We've now restored that whole area and the scientists have measured the birds over the last decade. And we've, for the first time ever, showed a 12% increase in population growth where we restored the population from where we haven't. So all of a sudden you're seeing uh, some, some, some positive gains from this conservation work. And so it, it's not all good, not all bad, but it's the, the coalition to continue to conserve that landscape continues today. And we just, we got our work cut out for us, but, but we're not giving up. Yeah. Well, I think um, that theme of tree encroachment will probably be a bit of a theme that uh, we talk about through the course of this particular episode. And it affects um, sage grouse, pheasants, quail, all sorts of prairie grouse, um, sharp tails, greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens as well. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll touch on that in a moment and, and close out our introductions with uh, our Midwest, we get, you got a new title now since the last last yeah. episode, Chris, uh, Midwest Director of Conservation Delivery. Um, welcome back to the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks for allowing me to get back on here. I love doing these and, and I can't think of a better group of uh, folks to do this with. Um, yeah, new, new title, new area coverage, um, shifting a little bit more north now. So, uh, but but thankfully, you still get to to keep a hold of Kansas um, and uh, and have uh, kind of expanded up into the northern Great Plains now. And so, um, yeah, looking forward to uh, to today's conversation and uh, and talking a lot about um, you know kind of where you know where things are shifting uh, for grassland and grassland conservation uh, in the Great Plains and Western United States, and uh, a lot just looking forward to talking a lot about the momentum that's going on right now. So um, we got the right folks on the podcast today to do just that. So thanks for having us. I want to take a moment and thank our brand new on the wing podcast sponsor, South Dakota tourism and South Dakota game fish and parks. Make a memory this season in the world's greatest place to hunt pheasants, South Dakota. Get your license and plan your adventure at HuntTheGreatestSD.com.
I mentioned, you know, since 2009, 53 million acres of grasslands have, have disappeared uh, off the planet, uh, off the, the United States, really. Um, and it's happened for a variety of reasons. Let's start there, Tim. Um, as, as you look across the United States and you've worked specifically, you've worked a lot in the West with sage, right? Sage grouse and sagebrush lands. But the challenges that have existed there are you not unique to just that part of the country. So explode that out a little bit for us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think to start this conversation, there's this this context of scale that has to come out in people's heads first, right? Where rangelands across the world, uh, they're, they're supported diversity of grass, forbs, shrubs. These are those big, large uh, areas that people typically call grasslands. And this is really where we get a lot of our healthy air, our clean water. This is where we get a lot of food, fiber. And it's also where we have these incredible, robust fish and wildlife populations. Pheasant guy, right? Think about uplands is synonymous with rangelands. These are those upland units. And if we look in the lower 48, just in the contiguous U.S., one out of every three acres is composed, comprised of rangelands. In the western hmm. half of the country, it's uh, approximately, you know, over 95% of those acres are, are in the western half of the United States. They're 70% of all the land that we have beneath our feet is composed of rangelands. And so you got to think about scale first and foremost. And although 53 million acres is a huge number, you got to keep it in scale of, of the western half of the U.S., right? Um, number, number two, uh, we got to think about how these western rangelands are really the primary driver of healthy rural communities and our abundant wildlife. And so where we have healthy rangelands, we typically have healthy communities and healthy populations of wildlife. And although they are seemingly endless, they're, they're vast flyover type, you know, country, uh, they're being lost at this incredibly alarming rate. In fact, if you go into like the prairie pothole, right, this is the duck factory, right, of, of the mid-continent, we end mm -hmm. up our current rates of loss are exceeding the rates of deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon. So, so these are, like you said in mm. the beginning, right? These are stats where you're like, wow, when you and I were going to school, it was always the rainforest is being lost. And that was a far distant place, right? Now it's our own backyard that we're seeing that massive loss. And so, um, so, so trying to understand well, what's causing that loss is really important if we're going to do something about it. And if you look across that, that western half of the U.S., there's really, there's four primary threats that are really causing widespread grassland loss that, that our agency can do something about. And, and those are, um, one is land use conversion. So this is direct conversion of rangelands to, to agriculture, uh, cropland. Mm -hmm. Number two would be this massive expansion of woody vegetation. Um, and whether you're in sagebrush range, people there would call them Western juniper or pinion juniper. If you're in Dean's backyard, they call them, you know, Eastern red cedar. Further south, they might be honey mesquite. It's this whole march of primarily native 
um, uh, you know, woodlands into former grasslands. The, the, the third thing is we have a lot of issues associated with invasive annual grasses. So again, this is more on the western half, uh, more of the sagebrush community, but this is where we get into things like cheatgrass and ventanata and, and a lot of these, uh, you know, exotic invasive annual grasses that are eating our lunch. And, and then the last one is really this, this uh, widespread dewatering of our wet, you know, they call them mesic sites. These are the riparian or low swales. Uh, so, so that's really what, what's causing it. You know, it, it's a combination of those four threats that are spatially um, expressed, you know, disproportionate across the range. So one area, you know, like the area in Lakeview, Oregon, we just talked about, they recognize their threat primarily as woodland encroachment invasive grasses. You go to the Great Plains, it all comes down to two things. It's land use conversion and it's woodland expansion. Hmm. I I love having you on the podcast because I can ask one question and I get a really, really thoughtful, thorough answer. But a couple follow-ups for you. Um, you know, I, I started talking about grasslands and you used the term rangeland. Uh, very deliberately throughout that. T tell me the view, the difference there in your mind, the, the rangeland term. So there's lumpers and there's splitters in this world, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and part of what, if, you know, there, there's all of these uh, terms that people become familiar with. And so if you're literally talking about a prairie ecosystem, people say, well, that's a grassland, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're in a sage step yeah. community, it's technically a grassland, but it's more of a shrubland. So, but 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 in reality, they're both rangelands. These are you know predominantly grass, shrub, forb communities. And so what we've tried to do very deliberately is start to talk about this incredible resource that we have in the U.S. That's really we call it rangelands because that's a more inclusive term where we could bring our our shrub communities, our true grass prairies in. Um, but, but it's really uh, a deliberate attempt to get people focused on these, these big grass, you know, shrub dominated landscapes. And, uh, because the other thing that we found too, is when we continued to focus on like the sagebrush biome and people would, uh, start to understand the threats that were causing loss and degradation, the people in the grassland environments, uh, they would also be talking about those threats. And it wasn't until we started talking amongst each other that we realized that many of the threats are exactly the same thing. But some mm. groups have found very innovative and new ways to address it successfully that we could transfer to the other if we only knew that we shared the same resource concern. So so that's really why when, when we say rangelands, we're talking it's grassland, it's shrubland, it, it's all of that. Gotcha. Okay. And then the, uh, the number one, um, let's see, you went to uh, Number one thing that's primary driver of um, rangelands was healthy communities. Yeah. Um, dive into that a little bit more, because I think as our audience of hunters and conservationists, from coast to coast, people are going to recognize the number two point you made of healthy rangelands, grasslands, healthy habitat, healthy wildlife populations. But hit your hit that first point a little bit deeper what you mean by 
um, that ecosystem being so critically important to communities? Yeah. So ranging grasslands from an agriculture perspective, we use cows to harvest our crop rather than tractors, right? That's how you harvest the, the grass is you consume it through an herbivore that we then slaughter and put in our put in our tables, right? That's how we harvest that resource. And so uh, one of the things is we start to look at these rural communities that are comprised of rangelands, it's really been these, these ranching families that for multiple generations have homesteaded and stewarded these rangeland resources through their sustainable livestock operations. And so what ends up happening then is you have these communities that are built around that natural resource of rangelands. And so we have not only uh, the individual ranch families, but you have their associated infrastructure in the small town USA, right? And some of these, they're mixed operations. Others, they're fully livestock. But bottom line, that's the bedrock for most of these communities is that agriculture base. And so if we have healthy rangelands and we're able to provide, you know, uh, good uh, wages and good income for those families, they in turn invest in their communities and in their schools and, and, and so forth. So, so, so it's really, it's not one or the other, right? You could say, well, I want wildlife or I want ag or, or something. It's, it's really, this is that whole concept of working lands for wildlife. It's like, that's the wrong question. The question is how do we have a land that's very productive, mm. that's resilient, that provides the thing that people need, the thing that wildlife leads, and that's going to, leave a legacy for future generations. And, and so that's, that's, that's where community is just a critical part of all of this. Uh, so, so you, you brought it in uh, the working lands for wildlife concept, and that's the intersection between all of this is, I mean, it, ultimately that's, that's how we take the next step in addressing the loss of rangelands enter working lands for wildlife as a concept, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I let, let's 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 start back again at the Great Plains grasslands, right? So this is where Kansas is going to fit in. We're gonna we're gonna go to uh, again. Think about that particular biome, and this is really the, the now we're going to get into the true grassland part of it, right? That's really where these big prairies are in the Great Plains uh, of North America. First off, we should be very proud that we host some of the world's largest remaining intact grasslands today. That's pretty cool. Uh, for example, the Sandhill grasslands in Nebraska is one of the most intact prairie ecoregions in the entire world. It's second only to Serengeti. Okay, so huh. that's ours. People don't even know that. that's our own legacy. That's our own landscape. Um, and so we should be proud of that. And, and the other thing that we should be proud about is that those lands have been stewarded for multiple generations as working uh, operations. You know, about 90% of that entire Great Plains biome is in private ownership. Most hmm. of it is in agriculture. And that is the land use that sustains, you know, that particular resource. It's also the backbone of the U.S. beef industry. Hey, let, let me put a stat out there for you. So in just that Great Plains biome on these rangelands, we produce over half of all U.S. beef production in the country. 
It's $58 billion a year coming out the end of these ranching operations that also provides incredible world-class wildlife, right? So this is where, you know, we have our famous whooping and sandhill crane migrations, the shorebirds. Uh, there's just hundreds of migratory birds in that central flyway. This is where uh, we have our strong stronghold for grassland species like prairie chickens, greater and lesser. Um, we, we have, uh, this is the mid-continent duck factory, right? As well as uh, kind of a mecca for a lot of our hunting communities, right? This is where, pe this is a destination. People go to experience this every fall. Um, and so I think that the, the answer then is how can we address these very real threats that are impacting those lands? It, it really um, necessitates a solution that addresses the needs of those people that own and operate those lands, as well as the wildlife that make a living off those lands. And so that's really the sweet spot where working lands for wildlife is this approach that NRCS uses to find these win-win solutions and then strategically target enough of the right practice to the right place to conserve that entire landscape to benefit those people, those communities, and those wildlife. Hmm. So, all right. So take us to this new initiative, Great Plains Grasslands Initiative. So as I understand it, this is sort of a, a, an idea that's germinated out of your brain. Yeah. Well, well, first off, I, I would be, you know, remiss to take credit for any of these great ideas because uh, I, I, I simply have the privilege of working with an incredible team uh, across this entire Western, you know, geography that makes all of this stuff possible. So uh, full, full kudos and credit, credit to the team. But, you know, one of the things that we did find about a decade ago, really trying something new and innovative through the launch of sage grouse initiative which really was this very concept of trying to simplify you know what are the big rocks what are those big drivers that are causing loss and degradation of sagebrush landscapes what are the win-win solutions that we can work with the ranching community to then leverage the farm bill and implement enough of those practices to bring about population level changes and and what we found is when we built that effort, we built it arm in arm with those ranching communities, with those conservation partners. It was a all hands on deck and it was a very much um, done very deliberately to make sure that every solution worked for those families that owned and operated those lands, as well as working to meet the needs of those, 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 those critters on the landscape. And so, um, you fast forward a decade later, it's phenomenal. We, we've actually conserved over 9 million acres <laughs> just in that sagebrush range through that particular initiative. And so one of the things we also learned was that that recipe works, right? When you work together to make sure those solutions do truly provide a voluntary incentive that those landowners are, are eager to to uh, invest in, um, we we actually can 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 make measurable uh, gains. And so so one of the things that we had further in the Great Plains was a similar project called the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative. Um, 
very sim simple goals, very similar goals, where again, we wanted to target those uh, rangeland or grassland regions down there, uh, address some of the same primary drivers. But, but I would say that we perhaps went a little bit too far on the side of what was good for the bird and not necessarily what also worked for the operation. And so um, what we've done is, is really tried to reset that, you know, and, and, and brought in our agriculture partners, you know, back to the table and really listened to them and understood what it was they needed to conserve their, their rangelands in their backyard. What were those hurdles? And then how could we, um, you know, make some adjustments in that particular uh, effort and, and make it more meaningful. And through those discussions, and this is where uh, Dean Crable and Kansas and some of these others came in, they're like, yes, yes, and yes. You know, this is not only a big deal in that sub-region where lesser prairie chicken live, but it's also a huge deal in the Great Plains. And so, so what we started to do is thought, talk about how like in the sagebrush community, you truly have a bird, the sage grouse, that has this incredible uh, distribution and seasonal habitat needs that make it that canary in the coal mine for the whole biome. And so we truly can conserve the sagebrush biome on the wings of sage grouse. You don't have the same thing with lesser prairie chicken or any species in the Great Plains that covers the Great Plains biome. And so, so that was where this idea that says, you know, we really love the results we're seeing in the sagebrush range. We love the opportunity we're seeing, you know, cropping up in the Great Plains region. How can we do something to transfer those concepts, but do so at these biome level? And so, so that was really where this discussion with our leadership began as far as uh, perhaps we could create something and what we're calling it now, it's a framework for conservation action and how we could create this action-based plan that identifies those large stressors that are causing loss and degradation of, of, of uh, rangelands in those respective biomes, but then could incorporate those very win-win solutions with those com communities that own and operate those lands to do what we did in sagebrush across the entire biomes. And so, so that's really kind of what led us to uh, move a little bit different direction and, and, and do so also in a way that doesn't direct any single funding source to where now these are, we'll call it our term, our government term here is program neutral. These are action frameworks that said, here's the problem and then here's the solution, right? This is the type of thing we want to put on this landscape, but it doesn't prescribe exactly how to do it that's where the local and the communities come in and they say, here's how we want to do it in our state. Here's the programs we want to use. And that's where we can open up the full scope of the farm bill rather than just one program or two programs. We can bring the totality of that farm bill to these action-based frameworks. And that's where Kansas is our leader out of the gate saying, we'll show you how this can be done. Cool. Okay. So that's a really valuable distinction. Um, and you mentioned the word framework. As I, as I started to prepare for this podcast, right, a person that's been involved in conservation and knows the entire acronym suite from EQIP to CRPM, I'm trying to sort of draw the parallels 
So, you know, is this a new CRP practice? What, and it's not. It, what, what this is, is <clears throat> it's kind of the umbrella, as you say, framework for what USDA and partners want to achieve. And then the baton gets passed to Dean and says, here's the collective goal. Dean, how can we best take care of this in the state of Kansas? Is that an accurate way of articulating it? It's 100% accurate. And, and two things for the listeners to understand. One is that at NRCS, through the Farm Bill, we're blessed with billions of dollars of taxpayer money that we are able to invest with these communities to put these conservation practices on the land. The vast majority of those resources are provided to the individual states where they work locally with their state technical committee to identify the best ways locally they want to implement that voluntary conservation. And so think of these frameworks then, if you're in a place like Kansas or Texas or any of these states where those partners are trying to figure out how they best can conserve rangeland land use in their backyard, now they have a beautiful framework that already identifies the most important things they could do to move the needle, but it gives them all the local flexibility they've ever wanted to figure out what practices, what payments, what program, just all the details, they can make it work for themselves and we don't get bogged down in the details. I would also say that we didn't build this and give it to any of these states. We brought all 17 of these Western states together, these state NRCS leaders and Together, we built these frameworks. So it's truly their framework for conservation action. Our team at Work Alliance for Wildlife is simply helping them coordinate and, uh, and, and track and quantify progress. So, Dean, let's bring you into the con um, conversation and tell us. Um, so, as I understand it, Kansas is the first state out of the gates. Uh, tell us your perspective on, on this concept and and why Kansas is uh, the first leader to, to be out the door embracing the, the Great Plains Grassland Initiative. Yeah, very good. So <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we, we were sitting there toiling with this idea of the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative and how its impacts were, were positive for the state of Kansas, um, but maybe it kind of run its course uh, to a degree, um, still having good success and still capitalizing, you know, working with our ranchers to, to get good conservation on the ground. But, but um, uh, we, we felt it absolutely necessary to kind of reframe, right, this, this idea of where we have been to where maybe we should go. And so we brought some of our, our great conservation partners uh, and our producers to a, to a roundtable discussion and kind of walk through, you know, some new and innovative uh, uh, approaches, what we learned from, from Sage Grouse Initiative and other folks, and, and, and looked at the science, right, of, of the current state of science and what we knew for, for uh, uh, woody encroachment and a few things like that. And, and so um, it, was a, it was a good, uh, a, a good move forward, right, as we looked at this framework getting built out for, in the grassland, in the biome, and certainly within within Kansas, right? And and so while we may be quote unquote the first out of the gate, right? It's it's we we're maybe half a step ahead of the other states, and it's largely because of our producers coming to the table and saying, you know, hey, we we really think we could we could shift gears, we could, we think we could do something a little bit different, right? And and really start to focus on 
on the threat, right, of, of, of the grassland side of things. Let's create resilient grasslands and, and, and for the benefit of all species, right, not just a single species focus. And so um, fast forward to, you know, uh, uh, not quite a year ago, and, and we, we held up additional meetings, but these were very producer-centric, right? These were the ranchers, the folks, these legacy folks that Tim was talking about. Um, you know, we, and we have, you know, uh, the fourth, you know, largest intact grasslands in, here in Kansas as well, right? The, you know, the iconic Flint Hills, right? Mm. But we also have some really other, other incredible grasslands in the state. So we really wanted to focus on our producers and our ranchers that sat in those, in those eco regions. And so we, we have, uh, you know, we have access to some, some really powerful information. We look at where, where, where do we want to strike? You know, what producers do we want to bring to the table? What, who, who is, who has showed up right in 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 the past and over time to um, apply conservation? And so we use that, and we used you know our our local folks, our partners to identify some key ranchers. So we we sat down, we talked to them, we we brought the science right, the the current science science that we see today that you know it comes out of Twidwell's lab up at UNL, and and really really put that in front of our ranchers and said, does this make sense? And and the aha moment for us was we. We, we didn't realize at the scale, right, the spatial scale that we're seeing this woody encroachment occur across Kansas and the impact that was having at the local communities, right? They were easily, they easily recognized the connection, right? Because it's their schools, it's their infrastructure, it's their, you know, their local market, what, whatever it is, right? They're, they're seeing it, this is impacting us day in, day out. And we didn't, we, we knew this threat was there, this woody encroachment, we didn't realize the scale of it. Hmm. And and that was our, our aha moment, right? For for us as an agency. And so and this idea of of being, you know, producers at the table and the science, you know, informing the decisions we're we're, we're looking at. Um, our producers asked the question of, of the partnership and certainly of NRCS. So what are you going to do about it? Right. What what can we do about it? And so, and in, in, again, internal conversations with with uh, the, the you know our science advisory committee, and you know uh, Tim Tim and his team, and, and the crew that says it, it it was a teamwork, right? That Tim talked about earlier on, but but um, we had good representation across the board, right? From our our ranching community, our our our, our constituents organi- organizations, our livestock association, farm bureau, our wildlife organization, state wildlife agency. You know, um, you you name the entity that 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 serves in a conservation capacity in the state of Kansas, we had them at the table. Was it? Here's what our ranchers are telling us. Where do we want to go with this, right? And everybody was all in, right? You know, with 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 uh, with the idea that that this needs to be this need, we need to lift up ranching, we need to lift up our grasslands, we need to lift up the landscape level because this impacts beef production at the global scale, or this impacts our local communities, right? They're drivers for all that. So. Um, so we, we in, in pretty short order, right, we, we built out, uh, you know, off those concepts, right, this grass, this truly grassroots effort under this framework. We presented it, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to our state conservationists, again, what Tim talked about, you know, uh, where, where they, they get the opportunity to allocate their resources out to, to specific and unique, you know, uh, natural resource needs in their, in their own states. Um, and we had to go, right, we got the green light. And so, um, it happened quickly, you know, and, and literally, you know, just, just months ago, right, we rolled out our, our initiative. And so that's our program fuel, right? That, that's what really drives uh, our incentive-based conservation for this framework is through this initiative. And uh, 
yeah, amazingly enough, we've had just just incredible reaction by our ranching community and our, and our partnerships across the board. So, so Chris, bringing you into the conversation as wildlife biologist, and I know you've been on a couple of podcasts, but the one that really stands out to me is uh, the one where we talked about what's good for the bird is good for the herd. Where you know you're a biologist who also is a you own cattle, right? You, you're a, a um, farmers or you're a rancher, right? For lack of a better term. Um, and both Tim and Dean have talked about how important it is from a conservation perspective to collaborate with farmers and ranchers, the, you know, bring the ag industry to the table. Um, so, Help me understand, because I know that there's listeners out there that will perceive, well, you know, it, it can't have both ways, right? You can't have um, what's good for wildlife also be good for, for ranching. But as a person that wears both hats, um, you have a unique perspective to provide our audience in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean, these are the kinds of conversations that get me really excited for, for exactly those reasons. And, you know, the reality is, and Tim just re- alluded to it earlier, is you can have both. Um, and we have had, you know, when he, in his example with the Sandhills there, I mean, if, if you think about it, it's a really romantic, I was been sitting here the whole time thinking about how to describe it. That's the best word I could come up with is it's a really romantic notion when you think about the grasslands um and that they will provide right so they're they're providing these local communities with a means to live and a means to sustain themselves uh and they're providing wildlife with the habitat they need you know we can't forget before we before we jumped on this podcast uh team dean and i were talking about bison you know, uh, they were imperative to uh, the habitat quality and the disturbance that the Great Plains needed. You know, they needed that herbivory. And so cattle in that way, you know, are a management tool. Mm-hmm. And so you, you do get the best of both worlds. And so um, plus for me personally, I love I, there's nothing better than, you know, pick your breed of cattle, but stick them in native prairie. I, I I'll. Uh, that's what my business card is, by the way. Um, Logan Logan hooked us up with uh, some pretty sweet pheasants forever, quail forever business cards. And he's like, why do you want to put a cow on this? I'm like, just do it, please. Just trust me. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I get into it. And, you know, I think the thing that makes me fully believe and know that this effort is going to be successful is, is just kind of doubling down on what Dean and Tim have said is it's state driven. And, um, and it's providing states, whether you're agency, NGO partners, ranchers, landowners with the tools and the technical assistance that they need. Um, but it's also very grassroots in that way. So in Kansas, you know, to, to Dean's credit, uh, Dean and I get to sit around from time to time and pretend that we're real smart and we know what's going on. But the reality is, is the genius is we go to the the people who know for real and that's that's the ranchers and so they're already doing a lot of the things that sustain 
these ecosystems. What our job is, is to help them. We're, we need to be a force multiplier there. So how do we make those management decisions or that enable them to take that taking that action? How do we help make that easier or more impactful? And and that's really uh, the modus operandi of, of GPGI in Kansas right now. It's we're going to start in these focal landscapes where we have community leaders who love big, healthy cows, but they love burning. Mm. They love putting cedars on the ground and most of them, most of them love pheasants and quail mm-hmm. just like we do. And, and, um, and so it's, it's really grassroots in that way. No, you know, no pun intended. Um, but, uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's going to help give us the lift and, and those, those farmer ranchers, uh, that have been involved up to this point, you know, they're going to be a megaphone, uh, to their neighbors. Um, and, uh, you know, our job is to, again, just help them to be successful. And, um, you know, so if you ask me what does success look like, um, it's a lot of high quality, very resilient grasslands, not completely devoid of eastern red cedar, but cedar in the right places. Let's just say it. Let's just say that. And then, uh, you know a bunch of pheasants and quail and chickens and other uh, grass and birds going nuts in the background. I think that's like, that's perfect. So you, you, you mentioned bison being kind of the piece of the equation that's missing, right? And cows, cattle are, are the replacement for that. And I think about, as I studied for this particular episode, I saw kind of a, a graph it was actually an illustration of the United States and how woody cover has just encroached on so much of what's rangeland, prairies, grasslands, shrubland. And I think about how expensive it is to remove trees and prescribe fire, both expensive and adoption. And so my perspective is like after kind of get through the knocking this woody cover back through some expensive early adoption, right? Burning and cutting, then enter it back in the cattle to keep it back. And once, again, forgive me because I'm not a rancher, but my assumption is it's probably going to be a little bit of an expense on the front end. But then once that bite of the apple is taken, getting cows back onto some of this grassland is actually going to be pretty manageable and profitable for both the landowner and for um, the average American. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, I think that's accurate. And I think in a lot of instances, you know, the reality of it is, is, you know, these producers we're working with and will work with, you know, they, they have more than a full-time job in and of itself, just doing what they're doing right now. And so, um, especially when you look at, you know, cedar encroachment, it happens really fast. Mm. And so it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, it's easy to maintain, uh, it maintain grassland ecosystems with fire that, that helps keep uh, encroachment of Eastern red cedar at bay. But if you blink twice, it can, it can be a little bit crazy. So that's kind of the goal here is, is through some of the USDA tools we have at our disposal, 
some of the things that in this case for Kansas, that Pheasants Forever is hopeful to bring to the table. We're hoping to put a lot of our eggs in the basket of let's get it reset because long-term management um, is, you know, we, we can help with that. There's, you know, the, the culture, the ethic is here in, in Kansas in a lot of cases. So we just have to help get it, get that first bite of the apple taken. And, uh, and that's where through GPGI and again, to, to kind of bring it back to Kansas where the state conservationist Dean's team, have been uh, incredible with saying, yeah, we're going to invest in that. We're going to help these landowners get, get there. And then in my opinion, you know, as, as conservation partners, our job is to help do that, but then follow back up. You know, that's not where it stops. You know, this is a, this is a lifelong commitment right. at this point. And, um, but yeah, once, you know, once, once that's that first bite of the apples taken, I mean, it, it really should be pretty uh, seamless to get, you know, catalytic back integrated and um, which hopefully means profitability goes up and, mm-hmm. you know, habitat quality goes up, everything we're looking for. So Dean, I believe that the Kansas um, initiative has been on the ground active for about two months. Is that, is that about right? And yeah, what's yep, the, right about two months. What's the response been in the state of Kansas so far? Yeah, so it's been it's it's been uh, pretty exciting to see the transformation, you know, from from awareness to action, and so we've had you know a number of our of our ranching uh, ranchers, you know, in a ranch community, you know, walk walk through the door and and ask the question, hey, what what does this mean, right? Are we, you know, got got the information in front of them, and and they responded appropriately, right? They 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 realized that again that the spatial skill they're working. Um, trying to tackle this, you know, is is more than they can do at their, you know, on their own shoulders, right? So, um, but so again, we we did focus in three very unique geographic areas in the state of Kansas uh, in those eco regions. Um, again, so we we kind of saturated the market with with information, uh, with with communications. Um, you know, we we have a great communications director we're working with to help build out some really great, you know, infographics and and, and data. Um, it hit all of our partners, you know, social media pages and everything like that. Um, so their response, our producer's response was, you know, come in, let's go in, let's or come in, sign up, you know, or whatever. And then tell me more about what this really is. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's assess the condition of the land. But I, I do want to, I want to kind of go backward just a little bit to, to the idea of, of taking, you know, taking the bite of the apple. Right. So our core focus area in, in, in Kansas is within intact core prairie, right? That's really our focus. And so um, it, isn't, it isn't the age old idea of let's go out and treat massive canopy of, of, of woody invasion, right? It's let's, let's shift gears, you know, and start to look at, a, at, at woody invasion as a pest. And, and as, as a problematic as, and, and what Chris talked about the, you know, the march across, you know, Kansas with woody invasion, it's not just cedars, right? It, we have these re-sprouting species that are extremely problematic. And so if we focus on these areas that are grass, that are prairie, right? And we start to, to, to work with our producers to assess the conditions of land and then, and try to manage that, right? In a, in a condition of, well, let's, let's simply apply fire, right? But let's monitor it next year and the year after and the year after. Um, and, and, and apply woody treatment where, you know, or, or brush management where we need to, right? But again, our focus is on grass, building those core areas, developing those, and then growing it out from there, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like, hopefully like a wildfire. 
So the producers responded, you know, to this new innovative approach to dealing with pests or woody species, right? Is identify them when they're when we have our our our, our prairies and they're vulnerable, right? Uh, vulnerable to invasion, and so um, it's easier to catch it when it's early, right? The woody invasion, so we can simply apply fire and, and get a great response, right? Whereas where we have been in the past, where we may have gone into those those woody draws or those high 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 canopy areas and and applied a lot of money, right, in 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 a in a small geographic area, small you know area within within the pasture, we didn't get the response, right. So we're, this is new. We're kind of flipping it upside down, if you will. Hmm. And so the producers responded, right. So they 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 realized that okay, along my riparian area, I need to push back the trees just a little bit here or there, right. You know, or or apply fire, you know, in, in this area where we haven't applied fire in the past, right. Um, and each of the each of the three geographic areas are really unique. You know, we, we had we had a major wildfire down in the Jip Hills is one of our focal areas. It it hit reset for them, right? It literally hit a reset. And so they're they're trying to clean up a little bit, hmm. you know, get their prairie and keep it as prairie, right? Keep it as a resilient system. Move into the Flint Hills, right? We already have a culture of fire there, right? We we get two and a half million to three million acres burned in that region every year. Um, you know, it's a percentage of it, right? It's not the whole 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 uh, Flint Hill complex, but um, so they they've seen the suppression. But they need a little help, right? Because they've got they've got the migratory transient trees that are right, you know, those are sprouters that are encroaching from the riparian communities or you know from from the neighbor, whatever it may be, right? That they they need help suppressing those. And then you move up to the lower Smoky Hill region, right? And it's it's all in, right? It's it's all the above, all the threats you can imagine, you know, just because we don't have a culture of fire. So, some folks do a great job of applying fire historically but not in the frequency or not not spatially right the, the the scale at which we need it and so and and they're more fragmented those pastures are smaller than than the other two regions so it, it's a unique animal there to try to tackle um the other thing we need right is is capacity <laughs> i can't get i can't walk away from the conversation there because the producers ask like what else can what, and we ask them what what else do you need you right you know they well like chris mentioned their their days are full right what else can we do to get to get to get uh, the these strategies applied in the landscape to get the wood suppressed, right? The fire applied, the you know the thing done out there on the landscape to help the producers. They don't have all the time in the world, right? They're 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 occupied with with their day to day operations. So um, we're working to that end too, right? To try to try to build some capacity to get that work done. I get so excited listening to these guys and thinking about you know not only where we've been but where we're going. There, there's there's two things I want to point out for listeners right now that as we start talking about the Great Plains Grassland Initiative and this new framework for conservation action, they're separate but related, right? So 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 think of it this way: this framework for conservation action spans the entire biome, right? In this case, the Great Plains grasslands. And so every one of those states had a hand at building that to say, look, when you cut to the cut to the heart of the Great Plains issues, it's all about land use conversion and this threat of woodland expansion. Here is our latest, greatest understanding of the science. Here's what those threats are. Here's how they've been growing. Here's what's driving them. And here's why past conservation actions have not been successful at halting these threats. It's from all of that learning that we've done what Dean keeps saying, we flip the script, right? So in this framework, like take the woodland expansion as an example, right? We know that these trees expand, especially in the Great Plains, 
where you have this inherent productive landscape, it's incredibly productive, it facilitates that rapid dispersal, mm. recruitment and expansion. And so what happens is people don't notice one or two trees is problematic. They see one or two trees, yeah, whatever, right? You just drive by, you don't even think about it. But when it gets converted to a forest and that rancher just lost 75% of his forage, he notices at that point or she notices that point. But we never did when it was one or two scattered trees, right? And so what we've always done in the past is we say, geez, let's go kill that forest that should be grassland and let's go spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars per acre setting back all of those individual trees. And while we're doing that on our backside, that little mm -hmm. tree that wasn't too big of a problem two years ago has five new friends and the seeds have 20 new <laughs> seedlings that are growing up in the hundred acres that we restored, we turn around and we lost 10,000 acres. And so if we go back in time, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to address woodland expansion in the Great Plains over the last two decades. Spoiler alert, we've lost, right? Mm -hmm. Not to say individually we haven't had success, but we haven't received the outcome of true arresting this threat of woodland expansion in the Great Plains. So what these frameworks do, it flips that script. It says, okay, if we're going to be successful, just like Dean kept saying, Let's start from where we have that intact prairie today. That's going to be day. We're going to light prescribed fire in that and prevent that rapid seedling and, and seed resource. And we're going to work our way back. We're going to work exactly the opposite, not just doing more, but also working smarter. And so, so that's where, uh, just as an example, I, I also want listeners to write this down. It's WLFW.rangelands.app. So WLFW.rangelands.app. That's the one stop you can go. There's a 30-minute video that explains both of these frameworks. You could download them. You could get all the technical information you want, the public affairs stuff. Just go and immerse yourself for a little bit and, and, and check out. These are really readable. Um, and uh, color graphics. It also highlights families and partnerships across the range that have taken this concept and made magic, right? And that's the success yeah. stories where you're like, oh, this could actually work. I see that people, you know, I see real life examples. And so, uh, so anyway, so I think it's from that framework though, that you have Dean and Karen, the state conservationist there, you know, in uh, Kansas that said, you know what? Remember, we talked about how the farm bill, most of those resources are allocated to the state level so they can make local decisions on what programs and practices. Now they have a framework to invest their local resources and get outcomes that they want. That's new. And that's what's so cool mm -hmm. here. So Kansas, they said, hell, we're going to call it our Great Land Grassland Initiative. It's our own resources through the farm bill that we're going to now invest very strategically, very smart. Uh, through this framework to maximize the outcome and get the benefits that uh, we all we all want for people again for communities and and for the wildlife. And you know, as you talk about the encroachment of cedars and and you think about junipers and you mentioned the word becoming forests. And so many of our audience lives in oh, let's say Minnesota and the East Coast, and right. and, and it's a negative 
for grasslands to, you know, um, for that succession to grow into forests. But if you live in Minnesota, that's your vision of a forest is completely different than what a cedar for quote unquote forest you're talking about. I mean, when cedars take over grasslands or junipers take over rangelands, I mean, it's a biological desert. It's nothing like a forest that, you know, maybe turkeys and deer live in in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, a cedar yeah. forest is is devoid of life, isn't it, Tim? It it's they are they they are uber competitors, which is why they they do so well. Is uh, they they have the ability to outcompete through lots of physiological reasons, everything else around them, and you know, so from that from that standpoint, yeah, it's a monocultural desert. Um, but also, you know, you talk about the Great Plains and, you know, you don't have to think too far, too many years back to think about some fairly significant wildfires that rolled through the Southern Great Plains that were very devastating for lots of people. That is, no pun intended, fuel to that fire. I mean, they're a significant risk in that regard. So we're talking about wildlife, uh, you know, forage, biomass, healthy ecosystems, but you know, wildfire prevention mm. in and of itself is, is a major part of this and something that really hits home for a lot of uh, producers, especially in, you know, that part of the Southern Great Plains. I mean, they've all lived that. And so um, long story short, uh, if you haven't ever had a chance to go uh, traipsing through a, um, a thick stand of cedars, I would encourage you to do so. And it won't take too many needles going, going down the back of your shirt to realize that they're not very fun. Yeah. So They're almost impenetrable. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, so, so people, this is an issue. You, you rightly point your finger right on it. Right. Cause people, Oh, trees, trees are good. They're always good. Right. That's like, well, no. Right. These are grasslands. These are unique biomes that have evolved over millennia to be large, intact, open prairie habitats. This is where hundreds and hundreds of species have very uh, specialized adaptations to live in that environment. When you start to fragment that landscape, and make no mistake, that's what you're doing. When you allow things like eastern red cedar to fragment an otherwise intact landscape, you have very measurable and predictable um, negative impacts to species like nesting songbirds, where we've mm -hmm. measured incredible declines of the most imperiled grassland songbirds, largely as a result of this fragmentation. Uh, think about the beloved prairie chickens, right? Uh, we now have science that shows that they completely abandon otherwise suitable habitat with as little as two trees per acre. That's mm. it, that's nothing. They won't go there anymore. We see the same with sage grouse, by the way. And so it, it's it's fascinating when you start to look at these threats, how when you take a large intact landscape, whether it's sagebrush or Great Plains, and you fragment it, whether you're putting in crop fields, you're putting in energy development, you're putting in trees, whatever it is, it should come as no surprise to anybody here that these wildlife that evolved and need that big, large intact landscape, they're going to be the ones that, that, that are negatively impacted. It's, it's, that's especially true for grassland birds, as, as Tim's saying. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you're looking at, you, you know, there's some fairly recent 
research on Bob White quail out of Southwest Missouri that uh, it all points to the same thing. You know, it's it, these large, intact, contiguous tracts of grassland uh, are incredibly important for lots of reasons we're still continuing to understand. And, you know, and I getting back to uh, Dean and Tim mentioned earlier, some of the science behind this, if you look at Dirac Twidwell's work, um, the spatial data that he has, I think that Dean and Tim alluded to earlier of the encroachment, it looks like an, it, it's, the, it's like an iron wall marching West and, and it's happening so fast. And, you know, so one, when Dean was talking earlier about the decisions around the geographies in Kansas, the way I've always viewed this, and Dean, you and I have never talked about this, but, you know, the way I look at the approach in Kansas is not here. We're going we're gonna to protect this, these strongholds and we're going to work out and we're going to work against it. Because to Tim's point, approaches in the past has been well, we're going to go over here. We're going to deploy all these resources over here where it's already taken a hold and we're going to go to work. Um, and then when you're focused on over here, you're not looking over there. And, um, you know, and, and so I think that's, that's the approach and I think that's the right approach. And, hmm. um, you know, we'll work, we'll work against it. Cause the, the positive is we know what to do. We know how to do it. And we know if we do it and we do it well, we're going to see a fairly quick, a response from a, from lots of critters that we care about. So, um, hmm. you know, this, this is exciting stuff. I think we're, um, I mean, I'm getting fired up just sitting here talking about it. I'm ready to, ready to drop a, you know, get a chainsaw going here. So, <laughs> well, Chris, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the creativity on this, right. Is, is working within our traditional business model, right. Trying to find, you know, the, the, the look, take the blinders off, right. That, that's kind of our vision. You got to take the blinders off. You got to look beyond your own pasture, right. You've got to find where can I get, you know, uh, to, to address this threat and where we may have traditionally gone by drove, driven by a site because it had, you know, small infestation of, you know, short, short seeders or, you know, whatever woody encroachment would have been there. Um, now that's our target, right? Because those are the big wins. Because now we're working and transferring that knowledge back with our producer. We're, we're learning right alongside them of, of the right strategies to implement, right? When to implement them. Because we know, right, when, when a cedar forest, you know, that big, heavy, thick cedar forest now is invading a site, we can go in there and clean it like, you know, clean it out. And, and right behind us, you know, the, the smalls are coming in, right? That is evident across the board. It doesn't take us long within a year or two. We can go back and see that, right? That's the challenge we're facing. We're not using the right tools at the right time to impact this. So intact core grasslands, yep, that's our focus area. Building out from there, absolutely. When we, when, you know, success breeds success. And that's that's what we're going to get out of this. Why? And it's because it's producer driven, right? This, this is their, if we're going to see success happen, right? It's going to be at the producer's on the producer's shoulders. We're just helping fuel it a little bit, right? And we have great science to support it. So th this is, and, and it's going to benefit all of us bird hunters, right? So we know we can go out there and hopefully we'll see the, the quail and, and pheasant respond appropriately and we can get some good hunts in, right? Well, you know, it only took a better part of an hour for me to kind of start to understand this concept. But if I can articulate it, you know, if you think about all the programs that are trying to influence conservation out there, whether they're, they're federal or state, you know, they're, they're built around trying to produce 
a very specific or suite of specific deliverables. You know, when you talk about CRPs, stabilize um, an environmentally sensitive piece of property for benefit of soil, water, wildlife. When, when, when you start talking about this concept being the Great Plains Grassland Initiative as a framework, what were the suite of deliverables you're after is really that biome, that ecosystem umbrella. And all of the acronyms, CRP, EQIP, you, you name it, trying to deliver that broader framework, that broader biome umbrella based upon the states that want to participate to execute, whether it's the grasslands or further out west, the, the, um, the sagebrush you know, ecosystem. It's really getting a state to buy into, hey, we need a broader perspective on what this landscape should look like. It's really landscape level conservation. Is that, is that accurate, Tim? You absolutely nailed it, Bob. Yes. And, and I think there's there's two other points to make on, on that topic. Okay? Number one is that we are not the Lone Ranger, right? NRCS or even USDA. We're a very you know important partner in this landscape, but we are just one of many other partners that are also working in this space. And so I think it's one of the things that we've done very deliberately is also said our frameworks consider our frameworks contribute contribution to a larger planning effort. And so in the sagebrush world, the Western Association of Fish Wildlife Agencies recently released what they call their sagebrush strategy, which is more holistic. And it deals with things like energy development, transmission lines, stuff that our agency has nothing to do with, right? We focus only on threats that can, you know, be addressed through voluntary conservation but you should consider our sagebrush framework, our agency's contribution to WAFWA's sagebrush strategy. And, and the same in the Great Plains grasslands, there's this massive tri-national uh, effort currently going on with, there, there's uh, there's one of my hunting dogs. Right? <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's good. <Zoe. laughs> I, you know, the, the authenticity is perfect for our listeners. You gotta remind us what, kind, what breed you have to. Oh, well, she's a beautiful black lab, about eight years old. And we've had this line since uh, early 1970s, actually. And we've, uh, they're wonderful dogs. I don't want to get off on a tank because I'll tell you about my dogs forever. But, um, but, but one of the things I would also say is like in the Great Plains, we are then contributing to what they call the tri-national uh, grassland roadmap that's being organized by the Bird Conservancy, the Rockies. So, so anyway, I want to make that point. And then the second point I also want to make is um, as, as I was smiling, listening to uh, both Chris and, and Dean talking about how and all the science and all this technology and all of this stuff, we haven't even talked about the, quote, unfair advantage that we have in building these frameworks and understanding these threats because we haven't really talked about our incredible all-star science team whether it's Duroc Twidwell at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We have Dr. Dave Noggle, University of Montana, Dr. Brady Allred, uh, Matt Jones. I mean, we are just, if you go look at the who's who on studs, as far as, you know, uh, big thinkers and, and being able to leverage technology in ways to help us 
envision and see these resource concerns in in ways that you know we've never seen before it's these people and so uh you know brady allred in particular was one of those that helped develop this technology called the rangeland analysis platform and basically what he did was took all of the satellite images that have been shot on this earth the last 30 plus years and worked with google to assemble them into a seamless data set and then worked with nrcs to went out in all of these natural resource inventory points and the blm where they collected site-specific information that said here's exactly what's growing on this site and used computer software technology to train those photographs to then be able to create a movie over the last 34 years of the whole Western US, where you can see things like uh, uh, woodland, woodland, you know, woody species, you can see their march across these grasslands mm. every year. You can see things like invasive annual grasses, you can see things like shrubs. And so it's with that kind of technology that we then pair with that local knowledge of those ranching communities and families that have been on those for generations, that all of a sudden you, you take this 21st century technology and then this foundational knowledge that's just priceless, you put them together and all of a sudden you're like, wow, not only hmm. do we see what's going on, we can not only, we can do something about it and then use this technology to quantify the outcomes. And so, Anyway, I just did. You got you got to go check out wlfw.rangelands.app and and really see see all this stuff for yourself. All of it's there. I, I just got to jump on this real quick because because Griff is absolutely right, and those folks deserve a major shout out. And just to just to kind of bring it on home here a little bit on the outcomes piece, you know, as as biologists and ecologists, you know, we focus on you know, impacted acres. So, so we know we're the worst about being in our own heads because we know what that all, we know the good things that are happening and we know we, we infer that already. And so by measuring things, but in acres or acres applied acres treated, that resonates with someone in the, in this, in our arena, mm -hmm. in our field. Right. But when you put it, in different means, like quantifiable outcomes, you know, and, and Tim, I'm going to jack this up so you can screw, you can come back in, but you know, number of bales, for example, you knew, you knew exactly where I was going, weren't you? So, so no, number of bales, you know, we, this work is going to help improve grassland ecosystems and, and forage quality and habitat. X number of acres, we can populate that into something that also resonates with other folks, you know, so this is number of bales of grass that has been added to the landscape or gallons of water conserved. Now that juniper, you know, out west, especially where it's a, it's a very important resource, we can quantify the number of juniper removed from an acre equates to X number of gallons of water that's now going into the grassland rather than being taken so it's very meaningful, hmm. meaningful, and it's actually going to help chart a course, not just for Great Plains Grasslands Initiative and these frameworks, but everything we do ecologically moving forward as a science. And these folks are behind and, and on the cutting edge of this. And so uh, just a major shout out to those folks who are way smarter than me for helping figure out. Uh, and I think I can speak for a lot of us when I say that, but helping figure these things out because uh, it's not easy. Um, 
but that's some of the excitement behind what we're doing because um, it's new science. Is it? Is it been? Can you take it even to coveys of quail added to the landscape through recapturing some of these grasslands? So, so think of it, Bob, like building a puzzle out, right? Mm -hmm. So some people start with the corner, like my wife always starts with the corner when she's building out a puzzle. So, so we know what kinds of things and what, what characteristics and what factors go into creating quail, let's say. But that the roadmap connecting that back to certain management actions and certain landscapes maybe hasn't been traced all the way back to where the two connect. That's a lot of what this is. And so we can, we, we can get there. You know, it's, it's almost like speaking just a little bit two different languages, but you know, now it's all kind of becoming one hmm. and, and that's happening right now. And that's, and that's relatively new. And so that will continue. My suspicion is as more of what we do as biologists, ecologists, range management specialists, go to more of a landscape level approach the you know being able to quantify not only metrics but outcomes uh, that's only going to grow um you know so again that's a long-winded way of just saying tim is right as always major <laughs> shout out to the science team so hey and, and you are recording this right bob i am we have it documented <laughs> yep. um all right so Kansas, landowners in Kansas right now can go into a local USDA service center and learn about the Great Plains Grassland Initiative, correct, Dean? Yeah, well, you know, we, we are still under COVID restrictions, so there's some limits there, but <laughs> yes, of course. Um, you know, we, we have we have a website with we have uh, some recordings. We have some information available there. Certainly they can get in touch with our, our local field staff uh, to, to ask those questions. Um, you know, are, am I within the core area? What what's what's the nuts and bolts of, of, of carrying this out? And if they're interested, they can make application. And within weeks, not months, they potentially could have a contract to, to take action to address these issues. They. They could also, Bob, jump on the uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever website in Kansas, as well as hit us up. I've always wanted to say this. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, and they can, uh, if they post in the comments, you know, what is GPGI uh, or any questions they have, we can get one of our field staff uh, connected with them as well. Perfect. Uh, Tim, tell us, is there anything that I should have asked you up to this point that I haven't yet? So maybe one question keeps coming to my mind, and that is, you know, what is PF's primary role in all of this? Um, because, you know, we have just an incredible amount of partners that are all working together on this common goal. Um, and I don't ever say we have favorite partners or we put one <laughs> above another, but, but, but I will say that pheasant, in Quail Forever has been a partner of NRCS, a very significant, meaningful partner from before day one. 
Okay, this was in the spitballing idea phase, right? PF has been in there. And so from the very first launch of Sage Grouse Initiative to the creation of these frameworks, to implementation, to helping us quantify those resulting outcomes that Chris was talking about, we share uh, an employee, right, with, with Julia, with helping you know, capture these incredible personal stories of conservation success. And, and so I would just say that, PF has been just across the board helping us from everywhere from envisioning to implementation to quantification to transferring. Um, you guys have been just phenomenal. And I, I just would be remiss if I didn't, you know, really hold you guys and gals up and, and, and tell you uh, in our CS, we do not take you for granted. The, the producers that, that we work with, we hear it from them all the time and how much they, you know, appreciate those local one-on-one -on -one conversations and those local customized conservation plans. And, and, and we have a tremendous workforce as an agency, but it's never enough to meet the demand and you guys step up every single time. And so um, we see you as not only uh, a past partner uh, in this effort, but 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 the key partner that's going to help us achieve these outcomes that that we're so uh, desiring to see. So, if you were going to ask that, that's what I would. <laughs> that's what I would well, have said. It's a it's a credit to all the wonderful biologists that we have working across the country in partnership with the USDA um, local offices and and working with all those farmers and ranchers out there to do. To, to find that collaboration, I mean, they're the intersection of the collaboration we're talking about. Uh, paint us a picture, Tim, for what this looks like. You know, dive into your crystal ball. Kansas has is, is, uh, got us to first base here. But uh, what's, what's this look like in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it too. What's this look like in the next couple of years? We we actually put a a five year vision on these documents. Okay, so these frameworks are our vision for the next five years. In reality, if I looked in my crystal ball, I think these are going to be our vision for the next fifty years. Okay, hmm. we're we're in this for the long haul, and and so I don't see a lot of drastic change. What I do see is that as local partners continue to see how states like Kansas are using their resources to very strategically invest in things that get outcomes that they desire, they're going to create what we, what we, we coined this term, and we call it conservation envy, okay? Mm. When they see their neighbor double their stocking rate, right? that neighbor gets this conservation envy that says, how did he do that? Right. How mm. did she do that? I want to make, and, and states do it all the time. When we hold up a, a Sandhill task force and how show the world, how awesome this community of partners is. And here's how they're moving the needle. A lot of people don't just sit there and say, well, that's good for them. They're, they get a little jealous. They get a little envious. Is it, I want to one up them. I'm going to show you how we could do it better here in Texas or, you know, wherever we're at. And so, so I see that is going to continue to grow. You're going to start to see 
more and more innovation. You're going to see partners recognize that NRCS has a new program in this farm bill called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, or RCPP, where partners can literally apply for massive amounts of funding. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars available through this program to focus on regional priorities. And, and did you know that Great Plains grasslands are one of the very few named priorities in RCPP. So, so I see a, a greater awareness and a use of specialized programs like that, that then supplement those state technical committees and the state conservationists. I see a continuation of our, you know, we do still have a million dollars a year that we've been investing through our Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative. Those states still get that same resource today. And so where we're dealing with woodland expansion and lesser prairie chicken range, bam, let's make it happen. We'll, we'll then use those resources to then match whatever the state we're putting on the ground as an example. So I, I see more and more mm. people mixing and matching their individual programs with national and new, all organized around a common vision and a common framework though, that we can track quantify and tell us the stories at a much larger effort that none of us could ever do before. And I also see partners of all shapes and sizes, you know, finding their niche saying, you know, here's the value added that I can provide. And, and that's what we're actively seeking. We're, we're, we're at the more and more conversations, like, again, go back to Kansas, go to those three geographies that Dean was talking about. Well, him and Chris hooked up from day one and they sat down and listened to those ranchers and how can we help you make this reality? And one of those things they said is we actually need a dedicated person that lives and breathes in our community and that we can then, you know, help us, you know, get the permits and the coordination, all those different things. You know that those applications now we pooled some money made that happen and now dean and chris are going through applications as we speak with those ranching communities to put the boots on the ground and so i just i see those kind of things then like you're planting seeds that we're going to be harvesting tomorrow right those seeds across the entire range and so it, it couldn't you couldn't none of us could be alive at a more exciting time to to, to bring conservation to to a whole new level it, you know, it's it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast again. And I, I think about the general person's perspective of kind of government employees and you just you're you're dynamic, um, entertaining, energetic personality. Uh, it just it dispels so many myths. You're, you're a preacher of conservation. And it's really, <laughs> and he runs like he runs like fifty mile marathons too. I mean, seriously. I mean, you just know you can't be around Tim and not feel a little bit like a lesser person. It just is what it is. Oh. Well, you can't be around can't be around Tim and not get excited about the future of conservation. So, uh, oh yeah, it's it's pretty exciting to to see how enthusiastic you are about the this vision for the future. Um, Chris McClellan, this episode was your concept. Yeah, it's time for final words. You get them. Um, put a bow on really? it for me. Yeah. Well, just first off, big, big shout outs to Tim and Dean for letting me talk them into doing this. Uh, but, you know, final words would be, um, you know, I don't think I could say any better than Tim. I mean, this is a really exciting time. 
both from, uh, you know, from a grassland conservation perspective, um, from a pheasants forever, quail forever involvement in grassland conservation perspective. Um, there is, there has been, and is going to continue to be a significant amount of emphasis placed on grassland conservation across, uh, across the country, but especially in the Great Plains and, and out West. And, uh, we're really thankful to be a part of it. We're really excited to be part of it. And, uh, we're looking forward to getting out there and working with landowners to help, uh, uh, help them meet their objectives and, and put a lot of birds, uh, on the ground. And, uh, as Tim said, there's plenty of resources out there for folks. If they're interested in learning more, they can reach out to us, uh, reach out to the natural resources conservation service, and, uh, we'll get them all the information they could want and more. So, um, that's my bow, Bob. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I do think it, it took me a little while, as I admitted earlier to kind of wrap my head around this because as, as sort of the news filters out, it's easy to assume what we're talking about is another CRP practice or a, a new program. Um, but what's exciting about this is something that has been talked about sort of in dreamy vernacular for decades, and that's a landscape level approach to conservation. I mean, I've, I left the baseball world 18 years ago, and I've and I've heard that landscape level approach to conservation for as long as I've been in this kind of industry. And there's really, it's always been sort of piecemeal. Um, and I don't mean that derogatorily at all, because there's been a lot of good things that have happened over the course of, you know, the, what, 1985 was the creation of CRP and, you know, the, the different farm bill um, have have elevated different programs with different focuses and have done really good and interesting things. But what's really impressive about about this concept is it does take a broader approach that tries to empower states to look in their own ecosystems and say, okay, what from a grassland perspective, where are we losing ground and how can we um, how can we protect the integrity of this biome, this landscape, for the good of the wildlife that live there, all the natural resources, whether we're talking water quality, soil health, um, the outdoors people, the hunters and the anglers, and critically important, which uh, Tim and Dean and, and Chris, you've all made um, in collaboration with the producers the farmers, the ranchers, the agricultural community, because they own this land, they live on this land, they love the wildlife and the natural resources too. How can we empower everybody to get what they want while protecting the integrity? And that's what's really exciting about where this is headed. Um, And that's obviously, Chris, why you brought it to to my attention as a podcast. Uh, So hopefully what we've done here is um, start the conversation. Um, we, I know that there's an awful lot of state agencies and, and um, um, states, uh, NRCS offices around the country that, that listen to the podcast frequently. And we encourage them to reach out to Dean and, and uh, reach out to Tim and talk about what's happened in Kansas and 
what are some of the things that they Dean's learned on, on the positive and as a challenging, right? Like you, you're the guinea pig, Dean. Um, what can Nebraska, what can Wyoming, what can Montana learn, polish, and do even better? Uh, because this is a pretty exciting approach and pretty exciting time. Uh, anything you want to add on to that, Tim, before, uh, before I close this out? No, I, I just, again, I want to thank you and I want to thank the listeners and uh, the ranching community and all those employees that have uh, put the real heavy lift behind this stuff and continue every day. Um, we, we have an all-star team that we can't lose. You know, we, we keep we keep our eye on the ball. Like you say, I love your baseball analogy. We, we <laughs> keep our eye on the ball. We will crush it every time. And and uh, anyway, it's just it's very uh, humble and, and and exciting to be part of this this all star cast here and and uh, appreciate the opportunity to chat today. Well, if we've been hitting singles, doubles and triples over the years with our conservation efforts, this is our swing for the fences, folks. Uh, <laughs> nobody goes to the right. Nobody goes up to the plate. Bob just called the shot. <laughs> Let's uh, let's Babe Ruth it, folks. Uh, the Great Plains Grasslands Initiative. Uh, as always, folks, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can learn a little bit more. Uh, what's that website again, Tim? Throw that website out again. Yeah. How about the Okay. www.wlfw.rangelands.app. Go find out go. more one spot. All right. Thanks for listening. And I'm Bob Sapir reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. For Chris McClellan, Dean Crabill, and Tim Griffiths, thanks very much.